Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Rodney E. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the preliminary final preview edition. Uh, just uh, two or three games of footy left in this marathon season, but they are the biggest ones and uh, very appetising preliminaries we have to look forward to as I say big hello to my Footyology Podcast co-host, Mr. Rodney Rocket E. How are you, Rocket? Hello, Rowan. How are you, mate? You know what? You love me all right? And I say you look very uh, healthy and fit this morning. Do uh, I? Good. <laughs> That's unusual. Perhaps surprising given uh, how uh, the sort of company and the hours I've been keeping of late. But uh, no, well, it's been a marathon, uh, but we're on the home stretch now. Maybe it's that. I can see the finish line in sight. Now, on a more serious note, we've got two great preliminary finals ahead of us and intriguing matchups, haven't we? Because we've got the top two teams playing two teams that have come through the elimination final. But unlike a lot of those scenarios, you feel like, well, at least one of those two teams from the elimination final is a pretty major chance. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think we spoke about it last week, the history of teams that uh, don't make the top four getting through. And uh, uh, no, no, both of them did. So um, but I think the Giants certainly looked the most impressive out of, out of those two. Um, and I think they're a bit of a threat. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes on the weekend. Yeah, well, I, I said eight, eight of the last 18 um elimination final winners have gone through to a preliminary final. How many of them have gone through to a grand final? Well, it's only three. Uh, the Bulldogs twice, 2016 and 21. Of course, famously one in 16. And even though they ended up getting smashed in 21, they did lead by three goals halfway through the third quarter. Uh, GWS, the other one in 2019, and they, of course, came to a sticky end. So, um, yeah, look, the odds still very much against it, but... Um, GWS and Carlton, yeah, you know, in, in form terms, probably arguably the two most informed teams in the comp. So uh, very intriguingly set up. We've got, uh, well, both previews to drill down on in fulsome detail. We're going to wrap up the seasons of the two teams that were eliminated last week and a bit of news about the place as well. So plenty on the agenda. Let's get stuck into it. On Footyology, News Feed. Well, let's start off with some uh, fairly big news at the Essendon Football Club Rocket, and that is the imminent departure of list manager Adrian Dodoro after 25 years in the roles of either recruiting manager or list manager. Uh, He will be handing over the reins after this draft to former West Coast and Gold Coast player Matt Rosa, who is taking over at the club in the role of talent and operations manager. Um, big news, given, look, we, we talk about Adrian Dodoro a lot, uh, probably too much in, in, in my opinion, but uh, even the way this appointment was announced was intriguing, wasn't it? Because it was a, I saw the press release from the club, it was like war and peace. It was sort of, sort of the sort of press release you'd draft for Kevin Sheedy's departure. Um and Matt Rosa, well, he's obviously got uh, a relationship with CEO Craig Bozzo from the West Coast days. And from what I can gather, pretty highly rated as a person. He's been working in the role of uh, general manager of Waffle Club Peel Thunder, who will be playing in the Waffle Grand Final this weekend. Um, 
but definitely a good footy person and a, a highly regarded person. Uh, big news though, like you don't see too many list managers accorded the sort of fanfare that Adrian or publicity that Adrian Dodoro's had over the journey. How do you see this uh, announcement? Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting. I think you know, having been there twenty five years, it's, it's a long stint. There's not many, if any, of the others that have done that. So I think he's got to be certainly uh, respected on the way out. Um, whether he was pushed on it, low internally, the fact he's staying on now to the end of the draft, which he needs to be because he's all across it this season. He's got his he's got his fingerprints all over it. So um, it's interesting with Matt now. I coach Matt at the Gold Coast, and you now he's a he's highly intelligent. Football person, highly intelligent person, uh, a good thinker. Um, as you said, a very well-respected person. What I find odd, I suppose, I know it's a Craig Rosso appointment, he knows him, but has he had experience in recruiting like he's been a football manager at Peel Thunder? So uh, it's a pretty big job. I would have thought to get that job, you'd need experience uh, in the industry as such or that, that particular facet of the game. So anyway, Craig obviously might uh, know a bit more than we do. Well, that's a fair point. Uh, I guess one thing that occurs to me is that both Craig Vosso, having worked in that football ops role himself, and even Brad Scott, uh, having done a fair bit of development coaching, I mean, they would both have a very keen interest in recruiting, list management, those sort of areas. I think they've, you know, I've heard various comments from people at Essen recently about a more collaborative approach in that regard. And I think one of the problems actually at Essendon Footy Club over the journey has been that, what do they call it, silos. You know, the various areas of the operation don't communicate with each other. And it may, perhaps that sort of more holistic blending of people across various departments, which I think Richmond did pretty well when they built up to their premierships, might be a bit of an explanation there possibly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think I think Matt uh, Matt would be like that, uh, but he's he's the one coming in charge of that area. So obviously, the coach, as far as list management, is not not so much recruiting uh, via the draft, which would be a well fortunate nice area. Um, that uh, now the coach will have a fair bit to say in that, but they need to have a a group mentality and have some uh, information across the board. As you said, Craig was has got experience in that, so. It'll be interesting to see if the handover is thrown um, from Adrian. Does he then keep staying on to help to help Matt in the role, or is he just finished once the draft's over? That'd be interesting, interesting to see. I'd be very surprised if Adrian Dodoro bowed out from the club altogether. I mean, one thing you cannot question about him is the extent to which he loves that club, and I think um, I think that's helped him survive. He's forged really strong connections with people at all levels of the club. Um, and he, he's a bit of a political animal, and I think his sort of mentor, if you like, Kevin Sheedy, sort of wrote the book on that. So that served him well. I would say, though, and, you know, this is no disrespect to Adrian, but there's a, a, a process of cultural change at that club going on, which was sorely needed. Uh, you've changed the most of the board. You've changed the chairman. You've changed the CEO. Uh, you're changing the football manager. you changed the coach. It just makes sense that you finish the job and get a new set of eyes in terms of identifying talent and then maintaining that talent. Essendon's approach hasn't worked for two decades now. Time to try something different, sure. 
Yeah, for sure. I think uh, you can see probably David Barham's uh, coming with that sort of thought process and mantra. And uh, but as we know, most footy clubs, certainly the big footy clubs, are political organisations, and Essendon are like that as well. So you'd like to see you know, Brad and uh, Craig Bosso and, and Matt Rose get clear air uh, that there's not the influence in the in the back rooms. So um, I think if they can do that, and then we can judge them in four, five, six years. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think one thing that Essendon people should be really encouraged about is the fact that you've, you've got the people in those roles now with a heavy football bias. So, you know, the biggest, my biggest criticism in recent years has been there's times when their football club has felt more like a, a corporation than a footy club. Uh, there's genuine and knowledgeable, um, you know, experienced footy people in charge of all facets of the club now. And I think you'll see a very relentless focus on the actual game of football. So uh, a few of us would say not before time. Anyway, uh, major appointment at Essendon. Let's see how that pans out. Another major appointment or extension, if you like, Chris Scott. Um, and this one quite quietly, really, but uh, he's had he, he was contracted to the end of 2024. That's now been extended by another two years. So Chris Scott will coach along until the end of 2026, uh, which by the end of that season would give him 16 years in that role, uh, which in the modern context, uh, that's probably about as long as we're going to see, I suspect. Kevin Sheedy, 27 years. 16 years now, it's a pretty amazing effort, isn't it? It is. And uh, even the coaching shows, you have a look at uh, Hardwick after what it was, 10 or 11 years, wanted to change. Obviously, the law of going north, maybe Chris Scott and Brad Scott were eyeing that job as well um, <laughs> for the Gold Coast. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, there's another two years. I think it's uh, obviously a voice of faith for, you know, for the job of Chris Scott has done. Um, they, uh, out of the past, where they've gone back a little bit, but they haven't dropped right out. So I imagine that's what they'll do. They're older blokes uh, are leaving. Um, introducing younger players, but by the same token, as a club, that they'll be there again in the market, you know, pushing for the eight. Uh, that'll be as far as they drop down to where they are at the moment. I would have thought so. Uh, to see how that how that goes and how that pans out, and if they're on a trajectory by twenty twenty six on the way up or close to it, I'd, I'd imagine he will be resigned again. Well, I got I wrote a thing recently when he broke the Geelong coaching games record uh, in late July. Um, I wrote a post about this. It's just his consistency of performance. He just can't deny it. So it's 11 years out of 13 now that his sides have made finals. Here's a big one for me, though. There are 25 coaches in the history of the game who've coached more than 300 games. His strike rate is 68.45%. Of those 25, the only two who even come close to that are Dick Reynolds with 67%. And Jock McHale, 66%. Now, those two are two of the most recognisable, you know, half a dozen names in football history. The other thing about Chris Scott, look at his contemporaries. Four of his contemporaries in that 300-game-plus category, uh, Alistair Clarkson, Damien Hardwick, Ross Lyon and John Longmire, their strike rates, 58, 56, 57 and 62. So, uh, uh, you know, the the... Phenomenal consistency of Geelong's effort. They've made finals in 11 of 13 seasons, grand finals in three years, two flags, and eight 
preliminary finals in a 12-year period. That is phenomenal consistency, Rocket. Yeah, yes, and 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 obviously the club said that and they've rewarded him with it. So, um, so then he's you now got three years now to with clear air, as, as I keep saying, to uh, do the job of getting them back up to where they think they belong. So, so which you think uh, with his record, he'll be able to do that. All right, well, let's finish off this news segment. And it's been a few days now, and there's been a lot said and written, but uh, we can't do this podcast without marking appropriately the passing of, well, one of the all-time legends of the game uh, in Ronald Dale Barassi. And uh, all of us who work in the industry have had some sort of contact with the great man. Um, you know, I won't rehash all the facts and figures. You've probably heard a lot of them, but you know the main one, 17 grand final appearances for 10 premierships as a player or coach. Uh, coached over 500 games, played over 250 games. Uh, amazing cultural impact on the game. Uh, a lovely man, you know, a very intelligent, well-rounded, articulate man, very self-effacing. Uh, now, I, I want to get your take on Ron Barassi because your contact with him, well, I mean, actually, when he was coaching North Melbourne, he would have coached against you as the precocious teenage wingman that you were for the Hawks, but um, later in life, when well, you succeeded him as Sydney coach. I'm just um, curious if you have any fond memories of that period. No, for sure, yeah. And Ron coached me in a state game, uh, Victoria game, on Queensland, Ron was coach. Um, and that really was my own, uh, my only half-crossing with him up until the stage I got the Sydney song job and who was on the selection panel there. And obviously a legend of the game, you know, probably the legend of the game, probably the number one, um, and uh, helped Sydney get some some credibility. Uh, certainly in a, in a non-football market uh, where it's a uh, whole rugby league, and just the face of him be able to do what he did there uh, was unbelievable. But for me, taking the job on, um, and it crossed my mind to say, "Oh, how do you follow on?" And people, I like, kept asking me, "How do you feel about following on some of the great men?" And he stayed on, he was on the board. Uh, and you can be intimidated, you know, but, but it wasn't like that at all. He was so supportive. He'd only ask questions. He, he would, as a, as a form of support, uh, never spoke about what he did or what, what it was like in his time or even the previous year. Um, no, he was such uh, an engaging person. He, and I think Sam Kekovic said it the other day, I had it on the telly, and it's exactly right. He had a presence when he walked into a room, like at the aftermatch of the Swans games. You know, his coach would have to go in there and do all that and be interviewed. And, and it was a, a room of A-listers and who's who and all that. So then Ron walks in it and there was just, just a presence. You know, the people would always look and look around it. And he did that. And I don't think he was aware of that himself. As you said, he's quite simple facing. But uh, I think um, if we had a Mount Rushmore of AFL uh, people, there'd be three, four, five aces, I reckon Ron would be above that. He'd be the one looking down, whether it's North Smith, John Kennedy, Jock McHale. I suppose they're all coaches, um, but uh, one of their played as well, but what they've done to transcend, you know, I think the whole is greater than some of the parts. It's just not his coaching and uh, playing record. It's what he's done in football and pushed the boundaries, you know, obviously to go into state to, to play 
Uh, took the job at the Swans. Uh, no, he'd been a great horse for the game. And yeah, he'll be sorely missed. No, look, well, very well said. And I think you hit the nail on the head there about the, the self-effacing qualities. I think it might have been Cameron Swab who, and, you know, from another great football family who made this comment about Ron, which was the thing about Ron Barassi is he doesn't realise he's Ron Barassi. <laughs> you know, so um, it's almost like he was sort of oblivious to the incredible reach and, and power of his name and persona that that created and in lots of various ways and uh, you know and he spans such a long time in the game that he meant different things to different people you know some people remember him most as the the Melbourne player and the son of Ron Barassi senior and the you know the kid who was mentored by Norm Smith and others remember him as the the firebrand Carlton coach and then North Melbourne and then other others remember him as the elder statesman with the swans and then media figure and you know like it just goes on and on so it's an incredible legacy and I think uh, you know we're we're all richer for having had him in our orbit at some stage in our life. Yeah uh, and I suppose the, you know, the relationship you get with coaches that uh, I asked John Kennedy a couple of times to talk to players once at the Swans, once at the Bulldogs, Alan James, but I asked Ron as well in my first year at the at the Bulldogs for Ron to come out and chat to the players and he was and I didn't have a as close a relationship with as what hundred a couple hundred other people did. Uh, it was only in a short period of time, but he was uh, he was more than happy to do that. He was engaging. Players loved him. Yeah, he was he was terrific. Well, look, uh, it's been a sad week, really, because uh, only well, less than twenty four hours after Ron's passing came the news of another sad uh, departure. I guess, uh, and that was of Kevin Cowboy Neal, former St Kilda great, uh, 256 games to the Cowboy, over 300 goals, uh, won a best and fairest to the Saints in 73, went on to a distinguished coaching career, coached Ainsley in the ACT to four premierships, went on and coached Central District in South Australia uh, and took them from being, a, I think at, at that stage, a bit of a... Uh, and also ran to uh, something a, a, of a, a bit more potency in terms of uh, power in in South Australian football. But um, a great player at either end of the ground, Rocket, and you, you would have played some footy against him. And the, his biggest single legacy, funnily enough, he never really got enough credit for, and that was so much talk about the 66 grand finals and Kilda wins by a point and that famous wobbly punt kick from Barry Breen, which bounced through for the point which gave him the lead. But in a game in which the winning side kicked 10 goals, Cowboy Neal kicked five of them. He kicked 5-4, basically won his side, that one and only premiership, and no one ever talked about it. I always found that really weird. Yeah, um, it was interesting because having been coached by Alan Jeans, a few of the old St Kilda players would, would come down. Cowboy was one, had a, had a great relationship with Jeans. He actually Barry Breen. And Breen and, and, and Cowboy were quite good mates, and Cowboy was quite a funny man, and he was a lovely fellow. And uh, he'd always had a dig at Brilliant, so they remember your wobbly kick, and I kicked five goals. So, but interesting that now he kicked five, and probably remember for something else where they could have won in '71 and probably shouldn't have beat Northern, where he belted Huddo and had Huddo's a year. So Huddo then had minimal effect, and they were in front by twenty odd points at three quarter time. So they he could have won them another game by yeah. by by actually disarming Huddo. But uh, well, you know, you know, you know the famous line about that in the. Uh, the pre-game meeting 
uh, Alan Jeans, the St Kilda coach, uh, expressing his concern about uh, what Peter Hudson could do. And uh, I think the line from Cowboy was along the lines of, well, he can't do much if he's unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, um, but he was a funny man, Cowboy. And for a guy who obviously didn't train very hard, he's a big man. He was but he had an enormous leap, um, read the game really well, and obviously could only play probably from back from forward in the old days. But it was a terrific player and a really, a really engaging, nice person as well. He was, uh, and I think, sorry, I think because in the end of his time, he, he had dementia and uh, he was struggling a bit. But a couple of times, the St Kilda 66 players would get on a bus and go to Albury and see. So now he's held in such high regard. As a great brotherhood. Just on that thing about playing at either end, I mean, he was doing that in the you know, mid to late 70s. It was pretty uncommon then. Like, I remember Ross Guendini at North Melbourne being swung from end to end, but the yeah. idea of the key position swing man, there weren't many of them. No, I think Brent Crosswell under... under yep, yep. Under, under Rass. Yep. Um, we had the Cowboy 66 then, then he went to fullback late, uh, the late 60s, early 70s, and then back again. So he used to... So it was about that time, but you had to be a, a certain skill set. They didn't play too many tricks in those days, the coaches. It was was seen as a, a revolutionary move by one player from one end of the, end of the other. Um, but, uh, yeah, he certainly had a great skill set, so yeah, we saw he missed. And I think, unfortunately, at the same time as Ron passing, that he sort of gets lost in the ether a little bit, cowboy, but he was a terrific self of the game and a, and a, and a great St Kilda legend. Again, very, very well said and uh, two great football lives and two great, not just football people, but two great people. So uh, condolences to the families and close friends of both and uh, they will be remembered. Uh, All right, we've got a couple of team seasons to wrap up. Uh, Let's do that now. Well, let's talk about the side which uh, finished officially sixth on the 2023 ladder after a top four finish in the home and away rounds, and that is Melbourne. Uh, the Demons, 16 wins and nine losses in the finish. Uh, percentage of 125. Ranking for points four, they were sixth. So not shabby, not outstanding. Um, points against, they were ranked second behind only St Kilda. Now, Interested in your thoughts on this rocket because they've been copping a fair bit of flack in the aftermath of that uh, heartbreaking semi-final loss to Carlton, but I reckon they're getting a bum rap here. I, I reckon, given the sorts of injuries they had constantly to the forward setup, even pre-season, you know, they Ben Brown, Tom McDonald, then Bailey Fritch got injured, then Jake Melksham was doing well, he does a knee, and then. Uh, uh, Harrison Petty, they tried him, that worked, he got injured. And then they kicked really inaccurately in both finals. Yeah, that's bad footy, but it's also a bit of luck thing. I would contend that had any, or at least one of those injured players I just mentioned stood up and played in both those finals, they'd not only win either of those finals, I reckon there's a fair chance they would have won the flag. So I reckon they're copying it really unfairly to be honest how do you see this as- yeah i'm uh, i i do agree i um uh i think that probably should have beaten collingwood first final and they'd be playing this weekend mm. so that's all it but maybe so i understand that um i think it shows they're not doing a lot wrong they're doing a lot right um 
Max Gorn going, probably got two years left in him. So they've still got a window. They've still got some talented players. Um, the two things that I didn't like and they need to work. Like, one, they cannot say, oh, poor us. We kicked, if we kicked, if we had in, we had injuries and we kicked poorly. Uh, if we kicked straight, we would have won and just leave it at that. They need to change. They need to, but they only need some tweaks. And their and their entries inside fifty is their biggest one. How they go forward with the ball, they tend to bomb it too much. Even last week they played quickly, missed some shots, but they still were going along and forwards don't present themselves. So their system just needs a tweak in that end part of the ground. Yeah, well, the proof of the pudding is the stats, which I was about to wheel out as you said that. So six for points scored, but this is a telltale one: only fourteen for scores per inside fifty. So. So, so what they what they work on, they work on uh, contested ball and defence. They talk about that. Yeah. So there's three parts of the game. That's two of them. You, you can't just disregard the third one, yeah. whatever that is. If you've got two of the others, you, you don't disregard um, trying to score. So they work on having volume of entries inside 15. Eventually, someone will kick a goal for us. Well, you've got to be better than that. You've got to be better than that, and it's cost them. So they do need to tweak that. They do need – so that's one thing. But but the you know sixty four million dollar question here uh, were the quality of the entries also perhaps compromised by the fact that the players looking for those targets inside fifty didn't have a regular you know week in week out forward setup because they kept getting injured they had to go with about three or four different forward structures even in the last two months of the season now if you've got a settled winning proven combination maybe the players upfield are have more confidence in looking for those targets and they and you get cleaner entries with that no i disagree yeah i agree on that point but i don't think they do that i think it's a coaching thing put it on the line against collingwood they just bombed it they didn't even look for anybody and just just bombed it i reckon you didn't go back to games they the last end of the last half a dozen games and they they got over the line and said gee that's a good win they've come from behind but their stats showed those types, and they had forwards in there. They got it by volume of entries. Petraka's not a good kick. Viney's not a good kick. Um, their forwards started there. They just bombed the ball. They don't give Fritch a chance. So they need to change their method. Um, I think Oliver's one of the seventh worst kick inside 50 in the competition. Petraka's up there. Viney's up there. Like they, they're not good enough, but they don't look for targets. They just bomb the ball. They just get it in there. And I think... It's their system needs to change. Their mentality needs to change. So it it can be talent. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think they gave these new players in the side of their 50. I know they're injured. Any chance by just bombing the ball. They gave Tom McDonald no chance. They gave Bailey Fritch no chance just by kicking it long and they're hoping for best. They were hoping for Pickett to do something special. Mm. Um, and Spargo gave them a spark last week. So I, that's my one point. I, and it's not a much, it's a 10%. It's a little, just a tweak to be able to maximise the retros inside 50. The other thing is that I didn't like coming out of Melbourne is what you're saying that you're thinking. I've heard Melbourne people say, oh, we've had a lot of injuries. Um, oh, if we'd kick straight. Oh, the Angus Brayshaw uh, incident, that, that impacted our players. Like, just making excuses. Don't, once you start making excuses like that, like West Coast did at the, at the hub, it's... It's it's a it's a right it's a path downwards. They cannot do that. They've got to stand up again and so accept some responsibility and say, yeah, this is what we need to do. We've still got the makings. We've done a lot right, as you said. I mean, ninety percent of what they're doing is right. 
Mm. So they now they're riding it, and they've got some really talented players, and they're they're probably pushed to get number one draft pick and all this. Anyway, they've got talent. Don't they now wallow in self pity and say, "Oh, poor us, and we've had injuries, and we've had this old what if set." Uh, it's gone. Yeah, accept the responsibility, change some things, and go again next year. So uh, we'll, we'll just talk about what they need, but uh, you know, a couple of other positives I reckon for them. Uh, Judd McVie, I think he really emerged, yeah, and, really and looks great. Uh, I think Trent Rivers had a a pretty yeah, good season. Yeah, probably yeah, got back player. on the radar. Yeah. Um, they got games into Van Ruyen up forward. Uh, I, I quite like Kyle Chandler as well. I reckon he can he can be a pretty good small pressure forward for them. So plenty of pluses there in the development front. In terms of what they need, you think Brody Grundy probably weaves. That clearly yeah. hasn't worked. Do they use the um, cachet from that deal and go out and get an experienced key forward or do they just stick with Van Ruyen and what they've got? Uh, they've got better. I don't know who's going to give up a, a serious force. Hmm. It's like Ruckman. Ruckman are difficult to get, even though they're going to, there's going to be revolving doors clubs this year with Ruckman changing clubs. You know, Jordan Sweet's going, probably looks like Port Adelaide. But I don't know who's going to let a forward go and watching. I mean, I reckon, say, Oscar Allen. They wanted to chat. I reckon West Coast wouldn't even accept three first round picks for him. No. Right? no, no, no four. So you're not going to get, it's going to be difficult to get. They've got to identify someone like the Brody Majeks, not so much where he is now, but. And I suppose I cover a diamond in the sand somehow, where the player's not getting a game at some club that maybe can go and do a job for us and we give them uh, a collateral a workhorse and one who's going to uh, a, a bit like the Brady Moore check or something. Um, where that is, I don't know. I don't think they'll get a talented, uh, good forward. They went after Josh Shackey, wasn't the wasn't the answer. So they've tried Ben Brown's thirty two and he's got a sore knee, so he probably finishes. McDonald seems to struggle a bit and get some injuries. Um, so they've got limited options. So, And they can't just say, oh, Penny will come back, but what if someone gets injured again? Then they're going to be held short again. So they'll need they'll need something. They'll need someone. Um, but that's where the system changes. You have a look at GWS. I know they've got uh, Hogan, but Hogan was always a real question mark. Riccardi's just a backup. But the way they use the ball, they pick the best option. They don't necessarily just bomb the ball. They just, it's a bit like Ange, Ange ball a bit in the soccer where... It's, sorry, it's just like picking targets and you don't bomb the, every now and then you'll kick it long and you and you get the smalls to go. So their system is, has got different alternatives. Collingwood's got different alternatives. City Elliott got the width and, and they go quicker. Melbourne goes slow really to get it inside their forward 50, so numbers are back. So I just think they need to just tweak their system and that'll help their forwards. All right, interesting stuff. And uh, let's see how they tackle their second successive straight sets elimination from the finals. All right, that's one of the two eliminated teams. Let's talk about the other one. Well, a straight sets exit also for Port Adelaide, who finished the season officially in fifth spot. 17 wins, eight losses, percentage of 112.8. They were third for points scored, the power, pretty potent in attack, but... And I think this one's pretty significant uh, in terms of fewest points conceded, just 12th. That's a pretty low ranking. Uh, the good stuff, well, they won 13 games in a row after a, a pretty poor start when people were calling for Coach Ken Hinckley's head. Um, if you step back and have a look at the progress from last year to this, they finished 11th last year. 
Uh, they were third after having away games this year. And, and of course, Ken Inkley now signed to another two-year deal. As usual with the uh, Port Adelaide supporters, there's a very polarised opinion on Ken's um, capacity yeah. to, to take them further. Uh, some other pluses. Fantastic year for Zach Butters. Connor Ozee, very good. Jason Horn francis came into that midfield and really added something. The downside, like I mentioned, the 12th for points against. They were 13th for opposition scores per inside 50. That's not good enough either. And I reckon probably a bit too dependent on those young guns, uh, Butters, Rosie, Horn, Francis. The older guys, I don't think, had great years. Charlie Dixon looked banged up. Ollie Wines had a pretty poor season. So I look at them, Rocket, and I think, Clearly got issues defensively, which they're going to address, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I still think their midfield's probably a little bit thin as well. How do you see? Yes, I agree. I reckon uh, the Port supporters, but even people like David King are really going after King. I reckon you've got to sit back and think at the start of the season where you think Port have finished and where their list is. Yeah. And I I don't think they've got a premiership list. I think... No. Ken Hinckley's done an unbelievable job. They've won 13 games in a row there, but I reckon five of them by less than eight points. Yeah. Like they, which showed me they had a lot of character. They had a lot of tough leads in the end against GWS. They were coming. They just couldn't kick straight. Not that they deserved to win. But they, they show they've got a fair bit of uh, grit, a fair bit of heart, and I think he gets the most out of them. I, I don't think they've got a great list. Now, you can say, well, he can take some blame for that and maybe that's fine and uh, whether it's the list manager it's him it's that collaborative approach but they um i think they 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 overachieved i think they did a fantastic job they've got some holes in their in their team if they want to go to the next level i don't think it's a coach i think it's the other way i think the coach has got the most out of that group uh they limited down back uh to score as much as they did to be number three in the competition was a real credit to them um wines needs to maybe go back in the middle rather he's too slow for a win um but he's dropped right off the off the face of the earth really from a brand like medals two years later is, is really struggling um but uh yeah they need to add to their list but i i i think sports supporters are always blinded so they always overrate where they're at and uh, because we're more they'll label work collingwood we deserve to win flags so it's not like that but i think the so-called media experts need to take a look about where the list is at and I think he's done a terrific job of the listing he's got. No, I, I agree. Every single thing you've said, I agree with 100%. What I'm curious about is why is there that enormous gap between what the Port Adelaide support base clearly thinks they're capable of and what what we think the reality is? Because I'm with you. I, I think the list is, is, is good, but I don't think it's great. There are clear deficiencies there. And it's a good point you make about those close wins too. Because they were able to consistently get over the line, which is actually a tribute to the coaching. So, yeah, the coach is responsible to an extent for the list, but not a hundred percent. And I don't, you know, this is a side that's come from eleventh and got to third after the home and away game. So, this I isn't as a. I think you got to look at the history, and the 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 old Port Adelaide Magpies won premierships and willy nilly. So they're stuck in. It's an 18-team comp. It's not a 10-team comp played in Adelaide. It's an 18-team comp. But are, there, but are their supporters still... I mean, they have oh, been... 100%. They have been 100%. part of the AFL now for... It doesn't matter. 27 seasons. It doesn't matter. That's just... I saw some of their past players. I'm meeting that. 
not quite measured in their comments, but say, no, you know, we're used to winning premierships. I mean, we don't, we go, hang on, let's get a dose of reality. And I think what happens with all supporters is they don't forensically look at their list. They become emotional, overrate where they're at. Um, and we'll talk about Carlton in a minute uh, when we talk about their game. But you've got to take emotion out of it and say, well, really, he's done a terrific job. They've done a good job to get where they were at a top four at the end of the home way. They've lost both finals, but there are reasons for that. Uh, but but they certainly need to take stock and they need to go another step. Like Now they can't afford to drop back now. They've got some good youngsters coming through. Uh, but I, I personally think they've overachieved. So let's talk about where they go because, I mean, the defence clearly needs bolstering. So the the two names we're hearing thrown about there are Sava Radagalia, that one keeps coming up from Geelong, and Brandon Zirk-Thatcher, who, uh, well, you know, I'm an Essendon supporter of a tremendously promising key player who came on in leaps and bounds this year, so he'd be a great get for them. You mentioned in terms of the ruck, uh, Jordan Sweet from the Bulldogs being targeted. So that would help. What about their midfield, though? What do they do about that midfield? Because it it, it is too thin and uh, wines. You know, how are they going to... Does Boat go on or do they pull the pin there? Like, well, they've got some big... I think I heard last night he's going on. Wow. He's going on, but as we're told, this what report was, um, he'll be really picked on for and might expect some time on the Sandful journey if he's prepared to go on for that. So... Um, that's where that's at. I, I thought he was. He thought he showed a bit when he came on the other night. Um, but he is thirty-five. I mean, with what you respect, he's not going to probably be go back into the midfield. Um, so they have have Rosie and Butters, who have been sensational. Have a tagger in Drew. Um, there's not much else that goes through there. Um, whether throw wines in there, I don't, I don't know. I think they've got bigger issues than the midfield. The midfield is not a top four midfield. That's, and that's your point. So then they've got some issue there. If Dixon goes on, Dixon's 32 or he's banged up and has always got injuries. George Yardis might be back. Marshall's really a, a third tall. He, he doesn't impose himself on a game. He's a nice, neat player. Um, so what do they do for a tall forward? But certainly I would think they'd have a problem in the ruck as well. You have a look at Lysette's not the player that they thought he was going to be. Defensive, so they've got about six or seven spots. So really, when you talk about like that, they've done a great job to get where they are. They've done a really great job. Okay, so so do you look at them in terms of next year and think their trajectory can only be down now, or do you think they still could improve on this? Um, I don't think they'll improve. I think, mm. as I said, I think they've overachieved. I think uh, they're at bottom of the eight, even a ninth or tenth list in the competition. Um, they would need to make the eight again next year, though. I think they, now they're good enough to make the eight. I, I, I think he's a good coach, so I think they'll get the most out of them. Uh, I think they've got a fair bit of character, uh, but there will be some. I think one they need to get, and they're not going to get all those players. They haven't got enough draft collateral either. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, they've they haven't got a, their own first pick. They've, they've traded out for Juan Francis as well, so their future's gone. Their, their first round pick's gone. So they haven't got a lot of collateral. So I would, they're not going to get all of them. I think they need to work hard to get Wines back to his best, develop the youngsters, get Dersma, who was really, I know he'd been out injured, but he was disappointed, get him back to take the next step. He's at that age now. He needs to do a Rosie and Butters 
Yeah. Um, he, he was disappointed. So put their time and effort to what they've got as well to get them up to the level that, that, they, that they can go again and challenge for top four again. Well, an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting trade and draft period ahead, particularly for Port Adelaide. Let's see how they try to fix up the holes that we were just talking about. Okay, they are the two teams whose seasons are over. There are four contenders remaining in two preliminary finals. Let's preview them. On Footyology, previews with Punch. The first preliminary final, Friday night, at the MCG, 7.50pm, and it is between Collingwood and GWS. Uh, the Pies got there by virtue of their qualifying final win over Melbourne by seven points. GWS have won two cutthroat finals, eliminated Port Adelaide last week by 23 points. They've played once this season, that was round nine, at the MCG. Collingwood won by 65 points. Um, and a pretty emphatic win that was at all as well. And the Pies of the MCG have won 25 out of 31 since the start of last year. GWS have had two games there that lost to Collingwood, but importantly, a really good finals win over St Kilda. A fortnight ago, we'll talk about personnel in a minute, but, uh, well, if you'd thrown this up as a preliminary final, say, three weeks ago, you'd think it was a bit of a David and Goliath, but... I don't think people are thinking that now, Rocket. That's how much GWS have grown in everyone's estimation in the last few weeks. And we said that about both preliminary finals about round 12, where they were 15th and 14th. Yeah. So, um, um, no, no, GWS have come with a real rush, haven't they? And uh, they've got, everyone talks about it, but really quite a balanced side. Like, look, good in attack. Defensively, you know, we've spoken about it during the previous couple of weeks, so, you know, three including Taylor, is a no-name who don't just stop uh, stop opposition with three players who just give a run and set up. Their midfield really, is an A-grade midfield. Um, Callahan's now getting, as a youngster, coming up and stepping up into that as well. Um, so they've got a really balanced Briggs. He'll play, but showed how much that impacts him. But he, um, he's developing into a really good ruckman as well. Shows you can find that diamond in the sand, isn't it, that uh, you don't have to go and pay big money for. So... Well, one of the things about them, surely, is just the the lack of familiarity with them, and and that's I think why we've underrated them. now. You know, the defence, you know, Taylor, uh, Buckley, Iden. Uh, you know, how many people knew it much about? And Connor Iden, he's been part of that side for a fair while now, but people still don't know about him. We know about Whitfield, but it's a beautifully balanced defence. Then you look at that the midfield group, and it's it's absolute A grade with the likes of Cornelio and, and Kelly and and Tom Green, the big body, beautiful balance. And Ward played really well last week, so he's and you got Callahan coming from the wing or go in as well. So they've got a really good balanced team. They've still got, in my mind, a couple of just noticed last week. I mean, they're running well by four goals, and probably should have won by eight. I mean, they were an eight goal better side last week mm. in opposition. Um, at a time to just go to sleep and rather they'll let the opposition get through them. And that'll be the thing Collingwood will test and Collingwood will ask them some questions. And that's the Collingwood just in every game seems to have one quarter or a patch of 20 minutes where they just go bang, bang, bang and just cut you through like a hot knife with butter. And then they then they just defend and uh, put the wall up and don't don't try and score. Um, so I'll be interested to see how, how this plays out. But... Uh, I know we've spoken about GWs a bit, but Collingwood are going extremely confident. Dacos looks as 
he's not going to be a hundred percent match fit as we know. He's not going to be, and he looks like he's moving really well, but he'll get he'll get fatigued by the second half. So I, I reckon they'll start him at half back. I reckon they'll start him at half back. I wonder if um, a, like a really costly absentee this game particularly is Taylor Adams to the Pies because uh, you know their midfield it's not outstanding. Um, and I reckon they need all hands on deck. And he's he's a hard nut, and I reckon you need that against GWS. So that that's a potentially pretty costly absentee for him. It is a ninth or tenth of the competition for a contested ball in the midfield. So they're not that's not what that area is that great. When they played Melbourne uh, in the first final, they targeted that area because because uh, Melbourne are quite good at it or really good at it. Um, and Adams was the one that well, that actually I think he had six or seven contested concessions in the first quarter. Like, he really went to town. So, they're going to miss that. The guy can do it. Fenderbury is best, but he's just dropped off a bit, Scott. But they haven't got really contested ball in there. So, that's where GWS have improved over the season. They were 10th, I think, at the end of the year. But they're two finals. They're, they smash board at it. And their contested possessions and swarsy stoppages, their clearances have really improved. So, parts of the game that weren't really strong, uh, they've gone to work on. So so that can be an area that they could get uh, an advantage. It's an interesting thing about Collingwood because their their raw numbers aren't necessarily that impressive. I mean they're they're okay for stuff. Um the the big thing that the thing that they've been supreme at is that sort of ball movement, isn't it, from half back. It's sort of it's a bit of an unusual profile for yeah, it's right. just been the best in the competition, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's not exceptional. Um, so, what, so what's getting them the wins then? Well, I think they they can defend as as in with if they can slow the opposition up. Like they did against Melbourne, they got numbers back and they get it on the slingshot. Um, they when they their their pressure to the opposition has been really good all season. Generally between the arcs, so they'll swarm you. They'll swarm you quickly. So GWS cannot afford to get stuck in too much of handball and too much maybe some quick hands and then get it what we call outside the bubble kick it kick it in and get a one-on-one further the ball Collingwood don't defend because they do they get numbers to it if they have a turnover themselves they don't defend turnover as well um so if GWS can get the ball in quickly that'll ex- not expose more because he's a real player but more tends to play off his man to try and support his teammates and as we saw last week GWS will just will kick the ball to whoever's free. They don't necessarily go to Hogan. They necessarily go to Riccardi. So it, it'll be interesting to see that if they can use their angles and, and use their vision, um, they they could expose Collingwood going that way. But Collingwood's pressure is probably the thing that gets them. They're, they're pressing between the arcs, turn the ball over, and then and then get the ball quickly inside their 50. I, I think the start of this game is going to be absolutely critical to to how it's played out. Now, the the famous or infamous 2019 preliminary final between these two sides, and and this is where that pre-finals by hobby horse of mine comes into it. Collingwood that day, having by then I think it was one game in 29 days because of the pre-finals by and then winning their qualifying final. They looked so off the pace for three quarters of that game, came with a rush, and of course, famously, uh, GWS held on. But um, it, it, it is a factor, this, and, and I think if we get to quarter time and Collingwood's been jumped, I think they're in a bit of trouble. They have to start well, I reckon. Yeah, it means to see what Maynard does. He started before the Brayshaw incident. He was 
trying to rough some people up last week and he's their sort of uh, energizer, I suppose. So there's with Adams out, does that uh, fall on his shoulders to sort of generate some uh, and generate some energy? But uh, that point you've made, that'll be spoken about inside the four walls. They can't labour the point though. They keep mentioning it, they've become a bit of a millstone, so you know, too big. But it's got to be a focus. Yeah. And, and we always do as coaches, we always talk about the start. We've got to get a start. GWS would be right for the start. Whether six-day break, travelling for both games now for the third time, minimal. Does that affect them later in the game, fatigue? They looked a bit tired towards the end of the game last week uh, when court came with a bit of a rush. So if it's close by three-quarter time, you'd probably back Collingwood. So I think GWS probably need to be, get the jump and probably need to be in front a few goals in three-quarter time. I'm also a big believer in, um, you know, the season playing out being reflective of, of the five months that have gone previously. Now, Collingwood would top almost all year for for good reasons. It wasn't just a fluke. And I think it's a bit of a psychological thing. You know, they've only played one game over four weeks. They're sort of out of sight, out of mind, a bit funny as that sounds with Collingwood, whereas the other mob, you know, really building momentum. We're talking about them more. We're getting excited by the footy they're playing it's sort of this natural tendency to to jump on that bandwagon, but um, you know I, I've got to stick. I, I'm going to stick with Collingwood here. I think um, you know I, I, I think that you're right. Good point about the pressure. Their numbers aren't don't scream. This is an obvious premiership side, but they've been the best side all year. And and that I think if they're you know at least line ball with Giants come three quarter time, I think that superior fitness and freshness is actually going to count for a lot. So. I'm going to go for the Pies. What, what are you... Do you go yeah. first, though? No, no, no I'm, I'm going for the Pies, Joe. I've been on the Giants' wagon all year, as, as you know. And, yeah. um, and I've rated them, they've, and they've shabby exceeded my hopes and expectations. And they're playing some really good footy. I like what they're doing. And as you said, the Pies, we don't know a lot about... You talk about role players, but their stars are playing well. But it's not all about the stars, I don't think. And they're playing... A selfless role as well. Even Green, you know, Toby Green forward plays a selfless role. Um, at times, if someone else gets it. So I, I think there'll be a real threat. Uh, but I think Colin were on top for a reason. Um, so that running missing Adams. Um, so um, I think them fresh, um, they can score, they can defend really well. So yeah, I think the Pies can win this game. Give us a margin. I don't think there'll be much. I think the. 11, I can't go 12, so I'll go 11 points. All right. Uh, I'm going for the uh, 10s range as well. I'm going for the Pies by 18 points. Okay, that is the first preliminary final. Let's talk about the other one. The second preliminary final is Saturday twilight evening. I don't know. What what do you call this time slot? It's 5.15. It's what's a pre-dinner drink or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I don't know. It's a weird one. At the Gabba, of course, wouldn't have anything to do with the broadcasters and them trying to, you know, get a good lead into something or other. Or is it because of the rugby league, the Broncos? Like, oh no, fair point. Fair point. Now uh, the Broncos are playing at home. They work in mysterious ways. Anyway, it's five fifteen. It's at the Gabba, and it is Brisbane playing. Carlton. Now the Lions won their qualifying final against Port Adelaide fortnight back by 48 points and Carlton, their thrilling finals ride continues a two-point nail-biter against Melbourne in the semi-final. 
Carlton have won their last four games now by a combined 16 points. Wow. Four points, four points, six points, and two points. So nail-biting stuff for Blues fans. Uh, Brisbane have won seven out of eight against the Blues and 10 of the last 12. And their only clash this year was back in round eight at Marvel Stadium, and Brisbane won that uh, pretty comfortably in the end by 26 points. Now, the venue here, it is significant. It is the Gabatoire. It's a fortress. Brisbane have won 22 of 24 games there since the start of 2022. They've won all 12 games there this year. Carlton hasn't got a great record at the Gabba at all. They've lost their last seven there against Brisbane. They have played and won a couple of games against other sides during COVID. But their last win over the Lions at the Gabba was all the way back in 2013. I'll go specifically through injuries and personnel in a second, Rocket, but uh, I think consensus here seems to be that Brisbane are going to stitch up the Blues. How, how do you see it? Um, that's my feeling. Um, uh, well, I think uh, what you said about the last four games showed that no, uh, sorry, Carlton have learned from last year, so they've obviously gone to home winning those close games, so they've done a rebuild. And last week really was just a courageous effort. I think it shows that well, Port Adelaide got a lot of spirit, got a lot of character. Um, although last week, the first and third quarters, their skill level was terrible. They turned the ball over. They had opportunities to pierce the eight and go inside 50 and just turned the ball over. And so they defended quite well. I know they, they were helped by Melbourne's inaccuracy, but I think apart from being banged up a little bit, I think Akers has had the sore shoulder for a week, so he'll be okay. Dockney will be a little bit sore. Uh, but they'll get Mackay and Martin back, I would think. So that'll improve them. But I just think away from home, um, no, as you said, the Gabba. And we said it every week, haven't we? Uh, you can't see Brisbane losing at home. And uh, I had their week's break. They're strong in the Mitchell. They can run. Um, yeah, I I just think Carlton, again, are probably over. This is my point when I was talking about Port Adelaide. Let's take the emotion out of it. You hear Cullen supporters now, oh, we're going to go all the way, we're going to win it. On the back of winning two finals by six points and two points, well, they probably should have lost both of them. So let's, supporters can do that, that's fine. But in terms of us as media, let's let's be realistic about it. Like, they've overachieved, they've done a great job, but I think the further you go, the harder it's going to get. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if this will go out, to be honest. No, to be fair, I think most of the stuff I'm seeing and breeding and hearing and whatever in the media is more along those lines. Um, Let's check off personnel. Uh, Carlton got a few sore bodies, definitely. Blake Aker's one of them, Uh, collarbone injury. Sam Doherty, he's got a banged-up shoulder. Um, Harry Mackay being monitored after a a pretty heavy knock last week. Uh, Jack Martin... Uh, eligible again from suspension. He has to come back into that lineup, you'd think. So some fairly major issues there. Uh, just one for Brisbane, which is uh, key defender Jack Payne, who has uh, an ankle injury. And in we're told reliably he looked pretty ginger during their training session on Tuesday. So that'll be interesting. Jack Gunson's the other one for them, uh, a super experienced premiership player they brought in to be part of the uh, their tilted a flag, but um, uh, I guess testament to how well they're travelling, he doesn't look like he's going to be part of it. 
Now, I think the Payne one will be interesting because he's been underrated a bit this year. If he doesn't play, and Mackay obviously is going to play, so you've got Mackay and Kurnova, whether De Koning goes forward, um, is what he did last week. Having Payne there allows Andrews to drop off. If Payne doesn't play, Adams is retired. Darcy Gardner is probably one that comes in, but he's undersized. So Andrews has probably got to take an opponent. He's probably got to take um, Harry McCall. So mm-hmm. does that expose their defence? And Carl, we we'll talk about Brisbane going to win, but that's the that's their big chance if they can manipulate that and that forward setup uh, gives them an opportunity. Now it's a, it's a good point. Like if you're talking about Brisbane, they've been the second best side all year. You, I don't. I hesitate to call it a weakness, but what is their least impressive part of the ground? It's probably defence, isn't it? I just had a look. They ranked sixth or fewest points conceded this year, but. Is it a, a defence, do you think, that relies as much on the work of their midfield to, to be defensive further afield than the actual defensive personnel? Yeah, I think they've got a reasonable... I think with ball in hand, unless they can really go, they tend to have a marked kick game, which allows them to set up behind the ball so they can defend with ball in hand while still moving the ball forward. Andrews is the one that just drops off like the Darcy Moore every time... It's, and his interception is fantastic. It reads the game really well. So if a pain doesn't play and he would take Kurnow, who takes Kurnow? Mm. Um, Kurnow has been beaten in both finals. Stephen May took him to the Cleveland's last week. But you would think, with all due respect, Darcy Garbrandt's not big enough, not a fullback to be able to do that. Does Andrews then have to go to Mackay? So if I was Carlton, you'd get Mackay not to run stupidly out and let Andrews drop off, but work across the ground. So Andrews is making him accountable, making him accountable. So that takes his ability to drop off and support on Kernot. So then you throw to Koning down there, like who do they play? So there's going to be a dry um, late afternoon. It's going to be a dry night. Um, Carl, if they can get enough ball in the midfield, and this is where I think Brisbane will probably win the game, um, see the midfield. if Carlton can get enough of ball, they could expose Brisbane's defence. Well, what about at the other end? Because Brisbane, um, second only to Adelaide this season for points scored, like Carlton's defence has been pretty good. But you know, you, you're talking about a different proposition when you, you know, you've got Danaher, you've got Hipwood, you've got Charlie Cameron. Uh, their midfielders now get on the board for goals. McCarthy, uh, Zach Bailey, Zach Bailey. I mean, they've got so many different goal-kicking options. Are yeah. Carlton going to be able to cover all them, do you think? I don't think so. Um, just last week, uh, Kemp didn't have a great game. Um, obviously, Weijin played exceptionally well. Uh, Sardi played quite well. Um, but, yeah, there's a concern with the defence. I reckon they can be exposed. And for, if you get equal and out of inside 50s, you think, you think Brisbane are going to win. So Carlton really need to get more inside fit. They're a stoppage team. They're a, a contested ball team. They'll want to slow the game down as in have contests and then try and get on the break. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think with New York, do, do they sit someone? Probably Hewitt goes to New York. Um, they've got uh, you know, some other really good midfielders in there who are playing with Earl Zorka can go through. They've, they've got some good depth in there. Um Young Fletcher on a wing is going really well. So they've got some speed in the right spots. So I think they've got most bases covered. 
That, that's a good point, though, in the midfield. We're talking about if Carlton is to... We're, we're arguing a case for Carlton being able to win. Walsh has to play out of his skin again. Cripps has to play out of his skin. You know, you've talked about, um, you know, Hewitt sort of shutting someone down. So, but that's not enough for Carlton, is it? They need... Who else is going to have to play out of their skin besides Walsh and Cripps as part of that midfield group, do you think? Chiara, I mean, they have got a bad midfield. Carlton, now got Chera, Hewitt. So there's their best four. With Mackay and Martin coming back, Angus Kennedy not surviving. I thought Kennedy did a reasonable job after a quarter time last week on Lever. First quarter is on Owe's Lever and just smashed Owe. Oh, just intercepting, stopped off and paid him my respect. And then I put Kennedy on him. And Kennedy did okay, but showed his probably shortcomings. Now he hasn't played for seven weeks. Does he go? Does he get a run in the midfield? He probably doesn't. Um, you know, you know, they've got Duncan in there who can he'll probably go to Cripps to limit his his effectiveness. Um and and now McCluggy just played really well, played so he's he was the one that turned the game for him last week. So they've they've got a lot of depth in the midfield. I think with a bit more speed and a bit more class, I think they they'll get more of the ball. Yeah, no, I agree. I think everything we're saying here is uh let, let's cut to the chase here. We we both think Brisbane's gonna win. How much do you think they're gonna win Boar? Oh, I think you can win by 33 points. Okay. Uh, I am going for Brisbane by 26 points. So I think we're both in accordance somewhere around that five-goal margin. Um, and the other one, we're both, uh, well, you've gone Collingwood 11 points. I've gone Collingwood 18 points. Uh, and actually, credit where it's due, Rocket. I think last week you picked, uh, you got two from two and I got zero from two. Oh, you got one, didn't you? Did you pick? Oh, no. Did you? You didn't pick you picked Melbourne. I picked did, Port Adelaide as well. I oh, did you pick Port Adelaide? Yeah. I thought you might yeah. have So you've pegged that you've pegged the deficit uh back to about fifteen, I think. So uh, <laughs> if the season went for another six weeks, you might catch me. Uh <laughs> well, I mean my well, one brag for this show. Um all right, no, great stuff. Uh thanks for that. Uh two massive preliminary finals. Always a great weekend, preliminary final weekend. So let's hope we get two cracking games. Uh, we'll be back next week to preview the big one. And not just preview the big one, we'll wrap up the seasons of the two losing preliminary finalists and talk some news as well and uh, maybe some other rubbish. I didn't do my Willem Who gag this week, Rocket, in deference to you. Good, thank you very much. I knew you wouldn't, pl- I knew you wouldn't play along with it. All right, uh, good work. Enjoy the footy, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.